Good morning and welcome to morning worship at Hillhead. It's great to see you all on such a nasty morning. If you're a visitor today, um, you'll find everything you need for the service on the sheet that you were given along with your hymn book as you came in. And a real special welcome to Amanda Quick, who is leading worship with us this morning. Amanda, it's really lovely to have you here. Amanda's a fourth-year student at the Scottish Baptist College and a member of Cooper Baptist. And we'll hand over to you now. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you, Anne. It's lovely to be here with you this morning. Um, Well, we've come here uh, together this morning as the community of God's people. And we worship a God who is Trinity, a loving, dynamic community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Triune God, we thank you for your truth which brings illumination, and for your boundless love, which inspires devotion. And we know that our love for you and for each other is imperfect. It's so often spoiled by mixed motives. And there are still corners of our lives that seem overwhelmed by chaos and darkness. And we confess now that darkness within and pray that you would cleanse us once more and enable us to walk in your light. Our reading um, is taken from James, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed." The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, You should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that's the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be able to worship and share with you this morning and hope you've been enjoying your studies in James. Now, I think the book of James is rather like a tube map It's a letter that stops at several different destinations. Suffering, wisdom, prayer, God's gifts, faith, patience. But it's not like the Glasgow Metro. It doesn't go round in a nice tidy circle or oval, whatever you want to call it. It's a lot more like the London Underground, arranged somewhat higgledy-piggledy. And you could connect up all the ideas in James through a variety of different interchanges and sequences. If you keep changing at Holborn, you'll get you know, different versions of it. 
So there are issues in James of cause and effect, but they're not always straightforward. And there are subjects and objects that act or are acted upon in different ways. There are statements and suggestions and stories all slung together on a thread of stark realism. And this second half of James 5 is a rather disjointed passage. It makes for a very unusual ending to a New Testament epistle. So we're going to try this morning to visit a few stops without getting stuck on any escalators. And we'll see if we can make some sense of the whole journey. So James begins this passage with a series of questions about people's current well-being. But they're rhetorical questions, aren't they? Because he supplies his own answers. But I'm sure if he were asking those questions in the flesh, he'd be expecting the answer yes to most of them. Now, these days, if you ask someone how they are, they often reply, fine. Well, that really irritates me, actually, because I know a lot of the time it just isn't true. People have all kinds of issues and problems to deal with in their daily lives. What does fine mean? Does it mean, I'm in a hurry, so you're getting the short answer today? Does it mean, well, I mustn't grumble because I have Jesus in my life? Very pious. Does it perhaps mean, I'm not fine at all, but I don't know you or trust you enough to share what's really going on? Our pastoral deacon in Cooper is a formidable lady called Maureen. Um, And she commented recently uh, that people have started to say busy instead of fine. Well, what does busy mean then? Does it mean I am productively engaged in economic activity and consumption in accordance with my prevailing culture? Maybe it means my life is full and I definitely don't have time to do that thing you're about to ask me to do. I think that's what it often means when I say busy. It means no more, no more. Um, Or perhaps busy actually means I'm stressed and exhausted, but I can't let you know that because if I do, I will fall apart. So we are busy and we are fine But this is James being real, and he's calling us to personal authenticity. Are any among you suffering? Very probably, yes. Best to acknowledge the situation. And this word he uses for suffering is wider than just sickness. It encompasses all kinds of misfortune and trials and difficulties, And one writer was suggesting that it might be a reference to the people who were being oppressed by the rich farmers um, that were being discussed earlier in the chapter. And later on, he asks more specifically, are any among you sick? Well, almost certainly, since suffering and sickness are a reality in our world. But it's not all doom and gloom. Are any among you cheerful? And the word he uses here suggests those who are in good heart, who are buoyant in spirit, um, who who have taken courage. And again, he seems to expect that, yes, there are some cheerful people there. At any given time, there are some who are going through struggles and trials and others who are enjoying a season of celebration or rest. And of the ones who are going through trials, some are knocked down flat 
while others have begun to discover God's comforting presence with them in that. Well, James calls his readers to be honest and to engage personally with God from that starting point. Those who are struggling are to pray. Those who are cheerful are to sing out their praises. Our spirituality doesn't exist in a vacuum. It takes in both what we believe and know about God and what we experience in our lives. And one writer suggests that this is about reflecting our whole life upward, acknowledging the sufficiency and the sovereignty of God, consecrating the good times and the hard times. So a call to authenticity. And then a ministry of healing. Having begun with the broad brush approach, James now looks uh, more specifically at this issue of sickness. And he presents us with a model for healing ministry. Now, I say a model, not the model. I don't think it's necessarily meant to be prescriptive for all times and places. James is writing to a particular group of people, and this is his suggested approach for them at that time. Although that said, I think it's useful to think on how we can minister healing today in the light of this. So what is James recommending? Well, in verse 14... He says that those who are sick should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, the initiative is to come from the sick person. Well, that requires them to be honest, to disclose to other Christians their true state of mental or physical or emotional health. Whether the effects of their illness are immediately visible to onlookers or whether they've been suffering in secret They need to admit that they're not actually fine and they need others to pray. They're to get others involved. And it may be that the sick person envisaged in this passage was no longer able to pray effectively for themselves. Maybe they were even quite close to death, although I don't know that we can see that really, but some have argued that case. But we're social beings, aren't we? Isn't it better to call for help sooner rather than later? And James envisages the leaders within the local church as being the people to whom the sick person would naturally turn. The early church knows nothing of solo ministry, and I would say neither should we. And while visiting the sick and praying with them is certainly an important part of any minister's role, it should never be left exclusively to that person. Otherwise, you run the risk of creating this highly ironic situation whereby the person doing all the visiting of the sick makes themselves ill through burnout. But the use of elders in this ministry suggests that the church should take responsibility. It's very important ministry, and it's sensitive. So it needs to be overseen by those who are mature in their faith and trusted by the rest of the church. And I say overseen by because I don't believe that prayer for the sick should be limited to a designated people only. There's a role here for all of us in the body. And especially those who feel a particular call to intercessory prayer. Those who have a passion to see God's healing at work. And those who are particularly close to that sick person in question. 
And personally, I would see no reason why younger Christians and indeed children should not be involved and included within the ministry of healing. So the elders were to come and pray over the sick person. And we can read that in lots of different ways. It may mean that you're praying towards the person, directing your prayers at their needs. It may be physically standing over them. Perhaps this was a person confined to their bed and the elders are standing around and praying over them. It could also mean praying over in the sense of calling on God's power over the illness. Now, some of the commentaries get a bit exercised about the fact that laying on of hands is not specifically mentioned. And I read at least one who went into a big kind of argument saying that people who practice laying on of hands today are going beyond what scripture allows. But surely praying over someone and anointing them with oil does presuppose some kind of gentle, loving touch where this is not unwelcome. And if we're talking about mature Christians overseeing this ministry, can we not assume they would have enough nous to be sensitive to the needs and the preferences of the person, to issues of infection and so on? Jesus never seems to have a problem with laying hands on those he prayed for, And he was always consciously modelling ministry for his disciples to imitate. Oil turns up regularly in scripture, in ordinary ways and special ways. In the Old Testament, we see it used in cooking. We see it in perfume and consecrating special people such as kings or even special structures. You know, Jacob anointed a pillar at Bethel. Perhaps anointing sick people with oil was a way of setting them apart, consecrating them for God's work of healing. And Isaiah 1.6 refers to bruises and sores and wounds that need to be softened with oil. The Good Samaritan poured oil and wine on the wounds of the injured man before bandaging them. And he was using the medical knowledge of his day that oil would soothe and wine would cleanse. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 13, we read that Jesus sent out the disciples in pairs and that they anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Now, there's no indication in James that this oil is anything special or that it has been specially consecrated Probably it was ordinary household olive oil. And here's what Tom Wright says. Anointing with oil is there to this day as a very simple yet profound and effective sign of God's longing to heal people. I want to share a cautionary tale from personal experience, and you'll probably think I'm quite mad, Um, But, uh, you know, by all means, I would say, use oil when you're praying with people, if that's something they would welcome, not if they don't. Um, And we've got our biblical precedent right here in James. But be aware, some people may be sensitive to ingredients in fancy oils. Many years ago, when I was a student the first time around, which is a long time, um, some friends prayed with my husband And they anointed him with oil. And this was a really super special oil that was made to an authentic Old Testament recipe. This was the Rolls-Royce of anointing oils we were using here. 
and we're praying for Martin and laying hands on him. And suddenly, uh, he looked up and said, my head feels very hot. And we, we stopped doing our pious prayers and we started actually looking and the poor man had a big red cross on his forehead. So he was actually allergic to anointing oil. So I feel I have to share that with you because I don't want you to all go around um, developing skin allergies. So plain is a good and safe option. But do use it because it can be a great, a great blessing. The one receiving the prayers, the one with the power to hear and answer, is the Lord. And in verse 15, we get this stunning promise. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. Now, this is either an audacious claim or a spectacular guarantee, depending on how you look at it. This word save sounds innocuous. It's a small word. But it's loaded with the very essence of God's person and ministry, salvation, healing, deliverance. They're all the same word group, wrapped together and poured out freely. And the text doesn't allow us to make easy distinctions between spiritual salvation, physical healing, and our hope of bodily resurrection. We dare not spiritualize it all away. Because the context here in James is a sick person. And we've read many gospel accounts of Jesus raising up those who are bowed down or bedridden. So the elders have prayed in faith in the name of the Lord. And the Lord, the one who healed the lame and the blind and the deaf, has responded in grace and power. Healing is an issue which touches us very deeply. Illness and disease are real. We have seen them disrupt our own lives and the lives of those we love. And we've witnessed terrible human pain and suffering, sometimes up close, sometimes brought close by the television screen. Sometimes sickness has claimed the lives of our loved ones and left us reeling with grief. How do we square this with the Jesus of the Gospels who appears to give healing so freely? How do we square it with James's bold claim that the prayer of faith will raise the sick person up? And in our confusion and our sorrow, how often we've cried out to God, wondering why he doesn't intervene to bring an end to pain and set people free from debilitating illnesses. And that heart cry is natural and normal. Any read through the Psalms or through Job will confirm that. But at times, our questions can harden into anger or bitterness against God. We've watched and waited for him to perform his healing ministry. And if we're honest, we have sometimes been disappointed. Now, Christian healing is a bit of a minefield, frankly. And we will all have different beliefs on this. We will have different experiences to share I believe that God can and does heal today. Sometimes the healing is complete, sometimes only partial. Sometimes it's instantaneous and perhaps more often a gradual process. And we're blessed, of course, with an excellent health service compared to much of the world. And God you know, can use uh, the health professionals, although he does sometimes move in healing power quite apart from any intervention. 
for the last three years until quite recently, um, Martin and I were involved in Healing Rooms Scotland, uh, which is a non-denominational Christian ministry available to pray with people for healing of any condition. And during those years, uh, a number of people have come along to the Cooper YMCA, which is uh, where we invite people to drop in for healing prayer on a Thursday evening. And in that time, we've seen one young woman healed of a back condition, who today goes dancing and does her work and all kinds. We've seen another healed of depression, and who recently was celebrating the fact that she's been a year now free from depression. We prayed for a baby who was critically ill with meningococcal septicemia and today is a boisterous preschooler. Many others have come for prayer and experienced a partial healing or a relief from their pain. And all who come feel some benefit from the prayer, even if it's simply that sense of peace, a release from anxiety or just a reminder that God loves them. And some of our visitors, many of our visitors, in fact, are not Christians, but they've come to seek after God in that place. And we trust that in due time, they will come to know his salvation. We're just links in a chain. But praying for healing on a regular basis can involve disappointment. We believe God can heal. The people who come for prayer generally share that belief. Their expectations are high and their need is very great. So we approach God in prayer boldly, confident that he loves and cares for each one who comes. But we dare not try and manipulate God. Our confidence and boldness in prayer must, I believe, be tempered with a proper humility. Because at the end of the day, God is sovereign. We can't see the whole picture. We know that God is good, but we can't presume to dictate how he will exercise his goodness in any particular situation. We're God's children. We can approach him freely. But like any loving parent, sometimes his answer may be no or not yet, even though we don't know the reason why. So we continue to trust and pray, even when God does not perform as we would wish. And ultimately, we cling to the promise of Revelation 21.4 that when Jesus returns and the old order of things passes away, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Human suffering and grief will come to an end. That's his promise. So the ministry of healing. And now back to the text, this example in Elijah. I'm going to come to the issue of confession and forgiveness that is touched on in the passage a bit later, but I want to look at this mini case study that James offers us. He upholds Elijah as a shining example of faith and fervent prayer. Elijah, who made himself publicly vulnerable in front of the prophets of Baal and saw fire fall miraculously as he called upon the Lord. Elijah, who raised a widow's son from the dead. Does he sound much like you and me? We can be tempted to choke on James's choice of comparison. How can we hope to emulate the faith of this prophet who could command the weather when we can barely operate an umbrella on a day like this in Glasgow? But then again, 
Elijah struggled with despair and depression. Sometimes he ran away rather than standing his ground. Not so unlike us then. Not a squeaky clean super spiritual giant. Just an ordinary man who prays to an extraordinary God. He was by no means sinless, but like us, he was making that choice day by day to love the Lord his God and to walk in God's ways. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Righteousness, according to Romans, comes by faith. It's not a matter of law, performance, or perfectionism. Romans 5.17 assures us that we who have experienced the abundance of God's grace have also received the free gift of righteousness in Christ. Everything we know and experience of God leads us deeper in trust and faith, even those detours through the dark valleys and the wildernesses. James's point is that we can pray powerful and effective prayers, just like Elijah. Excuse me. It's not that our faith controls Jesus or affects his innate ability to heal, but scripture does suggest there's something about a faith-filled environment that allows freer reign for God to move in healing. Now, this is mysterious to me. It's not something I yet fully understand. Richard Foster, in his book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, offers four steps for healing prayer. Number one, we must listen to God and to people, allowing our spirits to discern the Holy Spirit. Number two, we must ask with boldness. Number three, we must believe in confident assurance of the faithfulness of God. And number four, we must give thanks to God for his compassion and mercy. And my personal policy, as I've thrashed out these issues, particularly over the last few years, is to choose faith over cynicism every time, however hard that is. Because my faith is not dependent on results. It's dependent on the revelation of the character of God in Scripture and through living encounter. So I look to the God who has already demonstrated abundant love and grace and power to do so again and again in ways that weave into that unseen pattern of divine purposes. So we've been traveling mainly on the prayer line through our underground map, and we've stopped for a while at the stations of healing and faith. And now a little brief detour on the subject of sin and confession, which are mentioned. James mentions that the prayer of faith will not only raise the sick person up, but also anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. So is he making a direct link between sin and sickness? People in those days did commonly look for connections between the two. Remember the man born blind in John 9. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or or was it his mum or dad that sinned so that he was born blind? And Jesus says, no, neither of those is the case. This man's blindness merely provided an opportunity for God to reveal his glory. 
Now, of course, there can be a direct correspondence between sin and sickness. If I don't eat healthy foods and exercise regularly, as I know I should, I'm putting my system under strain and maybe at greater risk of ill health. But there's not a consistent link between sin and sickness, and Jesus was very clear on that point. But perhaps the point here is that sin, like sickness, needs to be brought into that prayer zone where God can deal with it. And struggling alone in prayer, whether with sin or sickness, has limited benefit because we need the strength and encouragement that comes from our church family. So James recommends that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed. James is passionate about the church being a truly spiritual community in which we are open and vulnerable, vulnerable, that's hard to say, to each other and looking out for each other's spiritual growth. And this is totally counter to our culture because we live in a world where people are fiercely individual. We can become quite private in spite of all of our Twittering and our Facebooking. The danger is that when we come to church, we maintain that shield around us, that mask, and we miss out on the healing potential of the community. A confession is something of a lost habit. In the Old Testament, there were frequently acts of corporate confession where the priest confessed the sins of the community on their behalf. Ezra is a good example He fasts, he weeps, he falls on his knees, speaking out the shame and guilt of the people, acknowledging that they have forsaken the Lord their God. And the people gather with him and weep, and together they renew their commitment to God. However, it may be that what James has in mind is actually confessing your sins to the person you've sinned against, much more personal, much more difficult. But how many relationships would be healed if only we would be quicker to admit where we have been wrong or where we have spoken unkindly? Coming to a person and saying sorry for the ways in which you've offended them could open the gate to a healing conversation and renewed fellowship with that person. Where our sin is against someone outside the church or perhaps just against God, it may help to share that with a wise and godly person who can help us through the process of repentance, receiving God's forgiveness, and seeking to live a changed life. Richard Foster, again, uh, he describes confession as a consciously chosen course of action that brings us under the shadow of the Almighty. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. And then we get this very strange ending to the letter, verses 19 and 20. None of the usual greetings to round things off. Just this final comment that when sin creeps in or a Christian wanders from the truth, we have a role in restoring one another. Wandering might be embracing false teachings or lapsing into moral failures. But instead of standing in judgment, we can bring each other back into that fold where God's forgiveness is freely available. And James declares that the one who guides the wanderer back onto the path will save the sinner's soul from death 
and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, at first glance, that seems like an outrageous travesty of grace. Surely only Jesus can cover sins. And this image of covering echoes the role of the high priest sprinkling blood on the atonement cover, the lid of the ark, to pronounce the people's sins forgiven. Jesus is the one who covers our sins, but our role in restoring others is simply to lead them back to Jesus and to stand alongside them while they take those first steps back onto God's way, probably stumbling at first and leaning on us for support. So if James is rather like a tube map, I think the message of this text really is that there are to be no passengers in the body of believers. We carry spiritual responsibility for ourselves and one another. And this community of Christ is to be characterized by authenticity and openness in our relationships. We are called to tell the truth, even the painful truth, that sometimes we are not okay. Sometimes we are sinning, we are hurting, we are sick, or we are feeling far from God. An open community becomes a channel of healing, restoration, and reconciliation. And throughout his letter, James has been utterly realistic. He recognizes that life can be bumpy, that we go through all kinds of trials, and he puts his finger on some of our most destructive attitudes and actions, such as jealousy, jostling for position, lack of self-control in our speech. And that realism can make for a very uncomfortable read. But James, when all is said and done, is a pastor. And his pastoral concern is that we grow up mature and complete, able to receive the good gifts of God and to bless others in turn, both inside and outside our community. Amen. We come now to our prayers for others. And after each section of prayer, I will say, Lord, in your mercy. And I invite you to join in the response. Hear our prayer. Almighty God, we pray for the world you created and gifted to us. And we thank you for its rich diversity of peoples and nations and cultures. And we pray for those places in conflict or unrest, particularly for Syria at this time. And we ask that you would protect all those who are vulnerable and that you would give wisdom to those who hold influence and responsibility. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for Christians facing persecution. We pray for those in Iraq who face daily persecution and also food shortages and housing difficulties. We pray too for Eritrea, where the UN are looking to appoint a special rapporteur to investigate human rights abuses, including many carried out against Christians. Lord, we long for freedom of religion to be a reality for all people. We remember our mission partners around the world and those who are traveling, and we ask that you would protect them, bless their work and their witness. Lord, in your mercy. 
We pray for this church, Hillhead Baptist Church. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to strengthen Katrina and enrich her ministry. We pray for unity of vision for the members here and for many bridges and fruitful contacts and connections in the university and in the local community. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Father, we've been thinking this morning about your healing, and we pray for all who are suffering in body, mind, or spirit. We remember those who've recently been bereaved, including the families of the 19 people killed in the air crash in Nepal. We lift up all who are struggling with different sorts of difficulties. We ask for your healing and comfort and courage to flow freely. And we just take a few moments of silence to remember individuals by name in our hearts. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And now on our heads and our houses, the blessing of God. In our coming and going, the peace of God. In our life and believing the love of God. At our end and new beginning, the arms of God to welcome us and bring us home.